Good morning. It is uh, June 16th. Uh, this is our 188th sequential webinar. Uh, we are so blessed to have a terrific group with us today. Uh, it is uh, such a blessing that we have a great group, but it is a very difficult time for all of us uh, uh, today. I'm Charles Denham. I'm going to be your uh, Master of Ceremonies today. We're going to cover a number of topics as promised on our invitation far more than one could put in just uh, 90 minutes. And therefore, those of you that are watching this or listening to it as a podcast, it will be uh, broken up into separate sections. For those of you that are watching live today, we likely will run a little longer than 90 minutes. We've got a wonderful section that, uh, that uh, Dr. Boats has done to help us with our families. First off, what I'd like to do is introduce you to a terrific fellow. Uh, Chief uh, Bill Adcox is on today, and I always laughingly tell Chief every time I talk to him and he sends somebody to me, they're fantastic. So I pay very close attention. And uh, in 2015, he introduced me to this fellow named Michael Doran, who's done and continues to do more assessments of school shootings uh, than anybody in the world. And I had the wonderful honor of actually catching him. He said, Chuck, I don't know how you caught me today. I haven't been in the office in 90 days. I won't be in in 120 days. For some reason, nothing's on my schedule. So I'm pretty frustrated. I said, why? And he said, everybody wants to know about active shooter events because I'm known for that. But there are many, many deaths that occur at our schools that are entirely preventable that, uh, that could be tackled by people that are not medical. I said, really? Because we were looking into active shooter events for Texas Medical Center. I'll cover some of those later, but that led to our MedTAC program that tackles the eight leading causes of death. He is a terrific speaker, and uh, we've prepared a little bit of a videotape for you uh, with Michael, uh, which I'm going to uh, uh, play right now for you. And I just want, I'm going to stop sharing just for a moment to just make sure that I have optimized uh, the uh, audio and visual for those of you that are, uh, that are participating. So we'll start with uh, that, and then we'll introduce our wonderful uh, panel. Are your schools, is your classroom a place of honor, dignity, and respect and support for every child? Because that is what it's about. I want to try to show you some ways to work smart, some simple things that you can do to make your classroom, yourself, and your students a lot safe. All the issues I'm talking about are relevant for public and private schools. We need you to be observant. We need you to be paying attention, and we need you to act. Are you treating people with dignity and respect? And that's all people. My message to you is there is risk anywhere you go. You made a choice to do something noble, which is to serve children. You'll be a better teacher if you're connected to the body language of your students. What do our schools and what do we say about safety? Michael Dorn is the executive director of Safe Havens International, a nonprofit organization focused on safety, security, culture, climate, and emergency preparedness assessments, training, and consulting for schools. He's one of the most respected and widely recognized, highly credentialed, and trusted school safety experts in the world. During his campus safety career of over 40 years, Michael's work has taken him to numerous regions, including Mexico, Honduras, Canada, Vietnam, the UK, Kenya, South Africa, Israel, and Mozambique. Michael has coordinated school safety, security, climate, culture, and emergency preparedness assessments for more than 8,000 public, charter, 
faith-based boarding and independent schools in a dozen countries. Michael has provided post-incident assistance for more than 300 school crisis events, including assistance to law firms, school systems, state agencies, and insurance carriers for 20 active shooter and targeted school shooting incidents in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Michael led the team of analysts who conducted the school safety, security, climate, culture, and emergency preparedness assessment of 254 schools and support facilities for the Broward County Public School System in the wake of the February 14, 2018 attack at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parklet, Florida. Michael, thank you for being such a terrific uh, national expert on these active shooter events. What's your advice to organizations as they try to decide what they do next? It sounds like there's a real evolution of the best practices, and they have to customize what they're doing to their facility. Is that, is that a fair statement? Well, one of the biggest things, I've, I've worked 23 K-12 uh, active shooter and targeted school shootings. Those are all planned school shootings in U.S., Canadian, Mexican schools. And there's a huge disconnect between many of the what we call canned approaches or a number of very popular uh, active shooter trainings like run, hide, fight, that in actuality in the cases I've worked as an expert witness or coming in you know, after the fact for a school district that have actually increased casualties. And we find that staff that go through these training programs perform worse uh, in actual shootings in many cases and in our controlled simulations that we, that we do. So one thing we're emphasizing is, as many experts have said for two decades, your plans do need to be locally tailored. If it's something that you can buy or print out and you don't have to customize the plan to fit your schools and, you know, your police responses, it, it's, it's, in our experience, very unsafe. Um, you know, when we see really high casualty rates like this last shooting, it's not shocking to me to find out, as I did, that that school uses one of these canned approaches. At this point, I can't firmly state that that's why the casualty rate was so high, but it, it, it there's a lot of indication that's probably one of the main problems they had. So uh, be careful about knee-jerk reactions. A lot of the people that you're seeing on the media uh, that are making these very firm conclusions about what happened and what went wrong, uh, they're not viable experts. A viable expert won't make those kind of opinions without uh, some cautions like I just provided unless they have actual knowledge of the event. So the main thing is you need to work with local public safety there are many free resources on the U.S. Department of Education website, uh, free training programs uh, that are available, and tools, you know, planning components that you can use to develop, you know, good plans and good training approaches to fit your particular school situation, whether you're a public school system, rural, urban, large, small, faith-based school, independent school. You need to have tailored approaches that fit your school or schools. And is it fair to say that it's reasonable to get together with your first responders and have those discussions and really kind of put together a bit of a strategy and then have deliberative practice maybe every quarter or frequently so that everybody's always on the same page? Yes. We, in fact, that's pretty much what we would call a standard of care issue in a court setting. And if you meet standard of care, it's usually a safer approach. So it's not just for liability that we say do this. So And be sure not just to meet with the police. Uh, you want to meet with fire service and emergency management, public health officials, because 
you know, you really need to plan for the things that cause the most fatalities, which are not uh, active shooter events. They, they represent a very tiny percentage of the fatalities on K-12 campuses. They get a lot of media exposure, but they represent uh, about 8% of homicide deaths on K-12 campuses. Uh, we have twice as many deaths on school property from suicide. Uh, you have 20 times more likelihood of a fatality from an athletic event or athletic practice. Uh, parking lot fatalities, uh, nine times more deaths than from active shooters. So be sure you're looking at all the things that, that you need to be concerned about, not just those that get intensive media coverage. And, again, I caution people, having worked so many of these, they rarely look anything like the media coverage in the first couple of weeks. They're just not – you just can't determine what happened. These are very chaotic, traumatic and confusing and complicated incidents to investigate. So all these experts that are saying they should have done this and they did that wrong, uh, a lot of, as we've already seen, you know, 80% of the information that was given out in the first couple of days has now been, we've been now told that that was almost all that was inaccurate other than the casualty rate. Well, Michael, thank you so much. You've articulated so many of the lists that you gave me years ago when we developed our MedTAC program. And were it not for that one conversation where you articulated these, these other areas of preventable deaths in addition to active shooter events, we wouldn't have our MedTAC program. And we now have had lives saved because of it. And they're directly related to you, Michael. So we're so grateful for your input and your constant dedication to these challenges. Well, it's been a pleasure to collaborate with you. And I would, if, uh, if we have time, I, I would urge people, we're a nonprofit, and we're the largest school safety center in the world for K-12. And we've got over 50 free training videos on our website, a free ebook. Uh, we're about to release uh, three new free training videos on how to improve student supervision, which is one of the best ways to prevent fatalities on school property. Uh, you know, so I'd urge people that are interested to visit our website at www dot safehavensinternational.org that's safehavensinternational.org and go to the resources section and, and check out that we've got a ton of free resources on there that uh, can help with concerns like people have right now but it's been a pleasure to work with you great thank you michael and we'll make sure to post that on our on our website uh god bless and uh, have a great day you too sir thanks so much so we're very grateful to you, Chief, uh, who is on live today for introducing us to Michael Dorn and uh, the great uh, advice that he gave us. Vicki King is the Assistant Chief of Police, Converged Threat, Risk, Protection and Investigations at the University of Texas Police at Houston, MD Anderson. Her colleague, uh, who's also an Assistant Chief, will support Chief Adcox today, uh, named Paul Cross, who will speak shortly. But we ask uh, Vicki, because it was years ago when we first uh, undertook our, uh, our very first active shooter program through TMIT to, uh, to speak. And Vicki was at a very important meeting, as I believe Paul is, and uh, we did, we were able to capture her for just a couple of minutes to give you a special message, and we want to thank Vicki for doing that. Vicki, thank you so much for taking time away from a national meeting to speak with us for a moment. You did such a wonderful job of helping us a few years ago address active shooter events. Now, after we've had these terrible events that occurred recently. Um, do you have a message for other leaders at our medical centers and schools and, and leaders of public uh, organizations? 
Absolutely. One of the things that we have to do is we have to address this issue proactively. Um, and that means that it's not just putting out and rolling out some video training. It's to drill on these events, to think them through, to have action plans, to fail when the environment is safe to fail. And that way, when a critical incident occurs, it's muscle memory. We're going right back to how we drilled, how we trained. We know automatically where our safe zones are. We know how to isolate our pods to protect our patients. We know the facets. We know um, the resources that we have within reach to protect ourselves and our patients in those environments. So we must be planning now for an event that, with God's grace, will never, ever visit our workplace. But we've got to train for it. We've got to prepare our workforce. We have to make sure it is something that we can, we can enact in a moment's notice because when that critical event happens, you don't have time to think. You must react. And if we teach our people at a time when it's safe, and they feel uh, that they're in a good, supportive learning environment, that's when the training will sink in and they'll be prepared should the absolute worst occur. Well, thank you so much. I know as you and I and Chief Adcox and Dr. Um, uh, and, and Dr. Boats have worked on our MedTAC program. We always hearken back to the military who have taught us that we don't rise to the level of our knowledge, but we fall to the level of our training, and the deliberative practice is so critical. Thank you so much. And thank you for bringing this issue forward and continuing the conversation because we need to continue, not just in the wake of a catastrophic event, but it needs to be part of our daily planning of our mission and how we approach workplace safety. Thank you, Vicki. We'll let you get back to the important meeting. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. So we've just heard from Vicki King. Um, uh, now what we'd like to do is just address uh, the uh, folks that we have today, both live and recorded. Uh, we're delighted to have uh, Paul Cross, uh, who's a, the, an assistant uh, Chief of Police, along with Vicki. He's the Assistant Chief of Police for Uniform Services at MD Anderson, University of Texas Police uh, at Houston. Uh, below his picture, uh, for those of you that are watching the video, is uh, Bill uh, Adcox, the Chief of Police and Chief Security Officer at MD Anderson, and I believe one of the pioneers of threat safety science. We've just heard from Michael Dorn. Uh, Keith Littner will comment briefly regarding what communities can do as a leader, a community leader in uh, Boy Scouts and across nonprofits. We're delighted to have Randy Steiner, who is the Director of Emergency uh, Response at the University of California, Irvine, who's also a, a leader in the community and a best-selling author, uh, which we'll share in a, a little longer bio. And we have Dr. Greg Boats, who on Thursdays, when we regularly have uh, this meeting, is uh, on duty uh, in the ICU at MD Anderson, uh, who's also an adjunct, a full professor at MD Anderson University of Texas, but also a full professor adjunct of 
appointment uh, at Stanford Medical School, who will uh, cover one of our really important topics today. Uh, what's very important to us, which is not tokenism, is to uh, invite uh, the voice of the patient and family. As we talk about patient safety and quality and caregiver safety, Jennifer Dingman is a, is a bright star in the universe of patient safety for many years. Uh, she's a winner of the, uh, of the 2018 Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award for her work, um, which helped push the PACS, the Hospital Acquired Conditions, across the goal line and now over a decade and, um, and many, many billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives were saved because she and a small group of non-medical people started a, a, a network uh, to put pressure on uh, CMS uh, who wanted to tie payment to uh, safety issues, but really needed the support from the community. And Jennifer was part of the team that filled that uh, mission. Um, a tireless promoter of patient safety. Uh, however, a one-on-one -on -one person who is always there with a ready ear to help patients and families that have lost a loved one. Um, Jennifer, would you be would you be able to set the stage for us today? Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Denham. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to hearing our speakers about this very important issue that affects so many in our country these days, sadly. I am thankful that everyone is here, and I encourage everyone here to please share the recording with your friends, colleagues, and family members. Um, I'll see everyone here later, and Thank you again, Dr. Denham, for having me. Great, Jenny. And uh, uh, this year, uh, the rest of the balance of the year, we're going to work very hard, Jenny, to reach out to consumers uh, to share more of our messages on emerging threats through social media, which is on the screen for those of you that are watching it. Uh, our, we take our purpose, mission, and values seriously. We always mention them at the very beginning of our programs. Our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. And during these active shooter events, everyone is at risk at our healthcare facilities, but also our churches, our malls, uh, our membership organizations, and public venues. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. We know that we have to show a, a value to communities. We believe there's enormous value in terms of training for active shooter events and the other emergencies. And then we, like most organizations, really want to live our core values, which so we can remember them easily, spell I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We have a disclosure statement, but I'll just let everyone know that none of our speakers have uh, product, service, or technology relationships that are being discussed today. Uh, we receive no funding uh, from uh, the pharmaceutical or device industry in a direct, indirect, or an affiliated fashion. Uh, these webinars for now more than 12, 13 years have been, uh, have been uh, funded by private philanthropy, uh, family uh, philanthropy. Uh, because we started uh, uh, really broadening our network when I had the honor of leading uh, the Patient Safe Practices Program for the LeapFrog Group simultaneously with the National Quality Forum Safe Practices, uh, we were able to pull together uh, a number of the major uh, qual uh, quality uh, performance improvement uh, and safety organizations uh, to help hospitals 
uh, move their safety forward. And over the last more than 30 years, we've uh, developed a, a network of 500 subject matter experts, and many of them are on today and recorded. Uh, just to give you a little brief background, uh, before COVID, uh, uh, hit, uh, uh, Chief Adcox, uh, Dr. Greg Boats, and I and others on our team uh, focused on emerging threats, and we started a community of practice. Interestingly enough, pandemics and preparation for pandemics was one of the approximately 30, 30 topics that we focused on. However, there were four that are right dead and center for today. Workplace violence, active shooter, violent intruder, and deadly force incidents. And just to remind you that active shooter events may not be very common and you hear, well, they're not very common, but violent intruder and deadly force incidents are very common. Many of them occur at our hospitals, our churches, and our major organizations that don't make the national news, uh, but they're critical. Domestic terrorism, and we I'm a retired radiation oncologist and radiation safety officer, so this is an area where I have done a ton of work in terms of radiologic and nuclear, but we also focus on chemical, biologic, and explosive weapons, and explosive weapons are part of some of these active shooter events, as you have seen weaponization of transportation and vehicles and what happened in Nice and in many many areas, but then also violent acts against leadership. And we've had that happen at Texas Medical Center where I trained and where Chief Adcox is responsible for as many as 20,000 20, people that are within walking distance of MD Anderson and Texas Medical Center. So today we're going to be, we're, we, we will fulfill our promise to address the uh, most uh, th the topics we have before you today, the latest stop the bleed programs, why we need bystander rescue care stations, what families can do to prevent harm and fear, what we can learn from recent lethal force events, teaming up with the community, what our youth and young adults can do, how we can support our first responders in creating a family safety plan. However, some topics we'll cover very lightly. Some of them we will we will uh, not be covering uh, in great detail. What we're going to do is we will have links to the Stop the Bleed program that was developed by the American College of Surgeons after the Sandy Hook event. Um, on our website, you'll see video clips and uh, short vignettes regarding uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, this, uh, this program. I, I wanna draw your attention to go to the website. The, the courses have been updated. They focus on uh, active and severe bleeding, and they focus on three things. Uh, wound pressure, tourniquet use, and wound packing. Um, we've had the honor of incorporating that into our MedTech program, which I'll share later, but go to the website. You'll see new information. You can watch an online course, and I highly recommend every organization and every family take the Stop the Bleed program. We've been we have taught this to hundreds of people from eight to 80. We tested it on third graders, and we found that it was very, very powerful and that they can learn it and not be scared. Uh, why the second one was why do we need bystander rescue care stations? Why do we need the why do we need Good Samaritan stations? Well, this MedTac program that we started uh, back in 2015 that was instigated by the uh, active shooter events, and you see major trauma is one of the eight topics that we focused on. That prompted my call to Michael Dorn. Michael Dorn's 
focus on these multiple areas of cause of death was how we developed our program. But we started like everybody with active shooter events. You can hear Michael's message that I taped day before yesterday uh, regarding the many other things that can occur. Sudden cardiac arrest with a thousand of them occurring uh, every, uh, every day. Uh, we have 7,000 in children. And our kids are uh, our, our kids are experiencing terrible, terrible uh, events that are uh, related to the electronics of their hearts, and more rarely from uh, uh, the from uh, cardiomegaly and other problems. My son actually, because of this program, we went to get him car get cardiac screening. Found out that he had a potentially lethal arrhythmia requiring two heart surgeries, and he's better now. But he could have died of them, and. I think I'm thankful that his life was probably saved by this program. Opioid overdose will cover very briefly, but uh, rising and just off the charts with fentanyl. Anaphylaxis continues to be a big problem. One in ten schools have a sudden have have an event uh, where uh, a, a child will have anaphylaxis and require an EpiPen. Many times they're not handy. Um, yeah, you must realize that 40 to 60 percent of the people that have anaphylaxis didn't know they were allergic to something. Major trauma, and I've covered the stop the bleed. In fact care. It turns out that cuts uh, in children today, because there's such bacterial resistant or antibiotic resistant bacteria and much more lethal bacteria that sepsis can cause death. And, and in another venue, we'll talk about that. Uh, Michael addressed uh, transportation accidents. There are more than 100 in, in the driveways of homes and in the parking lot of schools every single week. Uh, they're about half and half drive over front, drive over front, half and a half, um, the other half uh, uh, backup accidents, 60% are the patient, uh, are the child's parent or someone that they know. Uh, they're all preventable. And we teach, actually, we teach this in our MedTech program. And then bullying has led to an enormous, enormous rise in uh, childhood suicide. Um, we are post. We will post the two articles that uh, you see there that are supported by uh, or support today's webinar. We wrote two in Campus Safety Magazine, one active shooter healthcare article. We wrote that in parallel with one in the New England Me uh, Journal of Medicine, and the second was rapid response teams. The AED and, and bleeding control gear probably is a is another that would be uh, uh, appropriate. So failure to rescue. Why do we need to get everybody involved? in having uh, uh, rescue stations. These are the areas of, 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 of potential death. Um, the uh, major trauma you see in the lower left-hand corner is what we're talking about today in terms of active shooter events. But the question is, why should you have a rescue station where good Samaritans, non-medical, non-first responders can get the rescue gear that's necessary. Randy, I'd like you to kind of address what you and your son are doing at University of California, Irvine. Uh, we are putting rescue stations up and down the West Coast uh, in Southern California, but branching out to other states, um, two on Catalina Island and many at churches, schools, and beaches. What is a rescue station? My son is on the right. This was his Eagle Scout project. Uh, an automatic defibrillator is in the red, in the yellow case. Uh, a 911 dedicated 911 line that goes directly to dispatch a rescue surfboard and a spine board. But what's most important to our topic today is active shooter. We have uh, vacuum sealed uh, uh, packets of two tourniquets 
two, uh, that they each have um, uh, anticoagulation or coagulate gauze that's combat gauze that helps clot uh, during an, if there were an active shooter uh, event, uh, wound packing, uh, a Sharpie pen to be able to write the time that a tourniquet is on and two tourniquets. What this allows us to do, uh, and this is another variation of an, a rescue station where you could put a, a case right next door to the current existing emergency uh, defibrillator. And so on the left, the bleeding control gear is there for an active shooter event. Uh, just our team uh, of instructors and leaders, we've now had five of our instructors and leaders just in their daily lives, a camera, none of them are medical, by the way, a cameraman, a teacher, uh, you see David Beshka in the middle uh, there, uh, a, a committee chair, uh, uh, all have saved a life out in their daily activities. So why have a rescue station? Because uh, uh, automatic defibrillators are typically many times locked up, unavailable. There's precious little bleeding control gear available uh, and nearby if an active shooter event occurred in your organization. So uh, the takeaway here is these are not very expensive to put together. Anybody can put them together. Anybody can take the Stop the Bleed course. And many of us don't know how to stop an active shooter from coming to your site. But all of us can learn from third graders and above. We've proved it. They can stop bleeding. They can put people in a recovery position. They can learn CPR. So what can families do? Uh, one, I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you a, a huge daily killer is uh, fentanyl that's now in, uh, in so many of uh, the, the recreational pharmaceuticals that are being used by our kids. Uh, the counterfeit, uh, those counterfeit pills uh, that you see on the left, uh, and the pushers don't really care. And a tiny bit of fentanyl, which they crush into these counterfeit pills can cause death. Why am I bringing this up during active shooter? Because you should really think about having Narcan. And if you're gonna train somebody with, uh, with active, for an active shooter event, uh, it would be great to do that. So what can families do? This is a child that died, a child, over 18, a young person who died because he was on a skateboard accident and he did not have a medical power of attorney. There was a delay in his treatment for his family not to be able to uh, talk to him. So what could families do? Learn Stop the Bleed, learn CPR, and for anyone over 18, have a power of medical power of attorney, have your smartphone notify uh, families. Um, if the families at Uvalde, when they hit their, they could just hit 911, didn't have to get on the phone, talk to anybody. If they hit their SOS or hit, uh, hit their call for 911 uh, and they had this in their phones, everybody in there in case of emergency would get a phone call automatically through their Apple phone or through the apps that are in the other phones. Know the emergency providers in the area. If there's an active shooter event, you're not going to take somebody to an urgent care center. You need to know where the, the level one trauma centers are to get someone there, especially if EMS is delayed. And anyone that has medical records, uh, a, a medical problem that really needs to be in their medical uh, record, like my son who's had two heart surgeries, his EKG is gonna look, look differently probably than what someone else would. So these are things families can do. We recommend that you go to 
www.college911.net. Nanette Hausman started this in honor of her son who died, who you see there to the right, very much like so many of the kids that have passed away from active shooter events. The other thing is, is that after such an event, or you lose somebody from COVID, or you lose somebody from a car accident, we we put on a webinar, how to help a a friend in pain. We cited uh, Rick Warren, my pastor, and he does a terrific job talking about what you can do uh, uh, for these uh, for families after these events. It's now a real pleasure, uh, and I'll advance slides for you if you wish, guys. Uh, uh, Chief Adcox, as I said, is the Chief Security Officer. He's an Associate Vice President at MD Anderson Cancer Center, a dear friend, talk to him every day. He is so dedicated to help his officers and help all of the patients, families, researchers, caregivers at MD Anderson and across the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. But even farther, uh, uh, he is really dedicated to help others. Paul Cross, uh, we'll speak with him. And Paul, you may be taking the lead in speaking today. He's the Assistant uh, Chief of Police, Uniform Police uh, uh, Operations uh, for MD Anderson. Uh, c- could you guys tell us uh, about what you are doing today uh, and what you're learning? I know you've got your finger on the pulse of what happened in Uvalde, what's happened here in Laguna, uh, where my son's uh, doctor was killed, uh, and you're keeping a finger on the on the pulse of everything we need to know. Uh, uh, all advanced slides. Would you like to go ahead, Paul or Bill? I'll let Bill go ahead first. Go ahead, Bill. Well, thank you all very much, and we're proud to be here. We were going to focus today mostly around um, the active shooter, particularly in the in the in the schools K through twelve, to help out because that's what we're hearing a lot about. But these these principles will go far beyond that. First thing we hear a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, Paul and I have been in in, the, in this particular profession for a long time. You know, Paul's the, the former assistant chief in El Paso Police Department, one of the larger police departments in the country. He's also a former assistant chief at the El Paso Sheriff's Department. And uh, he's, he, he's, he's extremely experienced having run SWAT teams and worked with multiple agencies and, and been the emergency manager for the city. So uh, very pleased to have him with him and he'll, he'll jump in as, as time as he sees fit. The first thing we wanted to let everybody know is uh, priorities that, we're t- that we are teaching police officers, not only in the UT Police Department here in Houston, but, but across the country, is number one, top priority, first and foremost, is stop the killing. That means you've got to move quickly as you can to the, to the shooter, and you've got to neutralize the shooter. That can either be through, uh, through, through level of force or not by arresting, but you've got to neutralize the shooter. That's why you see police officers moving past injured people. They have to get to the person that's doing the killing and neutralize that individual. Secondly, is stop the dying. That's where the that's where bystander care comes in. That's where stop the bleed comes in. It's how do you rescue the person? And last and and and, and it should not be forgotten is stop the agony, and that lasts for a lifetime. How do you help people that have been suffering, family members, uh, victims that are still that are still alive? How do you help them get through the trauma? How do you help them with whatever they need? Uh, so those are our, those are our priorities. But we use a, a a couple of methods when we go through this. The first one is we have to move to isolate the shooter. All right, keep the shooter from, from you know, getting access to others or to people to, to, to keep them from getting to other areas of the building, but you've got to try to move to isolate the shooter. Next is, is part of the technique is, is you, you, you distract the shooter. You do whatever you can. We as police officers, and you can see it here on the screen, we always, we always say that citizen is the first priority of life scale. 
we always put our citizens and, and even in the case of small children way before our own. So we put our we put the citizens first. We're going to distract the shooter, bring the shooter's attention to us, or just to 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 some to, to shooting down the hall or something, but to get them distracted. And and as we're moving towards, we're going to neutralize that individual. We're going to stop that killing as quickly uh, as we can, uh, and then go to our other priorities. Do you want to switch this slide? Yes, sir. Paul, you want to jump in? Sure, sure. Uh, there's a lot of common uh, programs out across the country. Uh, and as you see on the slide, there's, there's several that are listed there. Uh, run, hide, fight, uh, avoid, deny, defend. Let me speak to those two first. Uh, all of these different programs and training, uh, training methodologies have the same core uh, uh, values in them, and that is first you want to avoid the shooter. You want to get away from the shooter. Secondly, if you can't do that, you want to find some place to hide and some place that is secure you can hide in. And lastly, if you can't do that, it's they're all, they all have a common fight, defend, take out the shooter, or what have you. Uh, in our situation, we work in an environment where we have an educational setting and a clinical setting. For our administrative buildings, we practice run, hide, fight. For our clinical buildings, we practice avoid, deny, defend, because obviously clinicians can't leave or won't leave their patients. And so when I say we practice those, we, we go over those and train all the time. Let me speak to, let me speak to the issue of how we first respond and how we train for an active shooter incident, we spend a lot of time not only doing the drills, but we spend a lot of time with our critical incident reviews. And those are incidents, critical incidents that have happened around the country, uh, sharing that information and going over those incidents and events with our officers. And the reason why we do that is because we spend a great deal of time mentally preparing our officers. There's a lot of exercises and tactical drills but if you're not mentally preparing your officers psychologically to show up at a scene, do what they have to do immediately. And so we train our officers' mind that, hey, if there's an active shooter, you must go in and confront that, confront that shooter immediately and neutralize the threat. So I want to, I want to, I can't stress how important that is and how much we spend mentally preparing officers to do that. So, so we have the run, hide, fight, and then the void, deny, defend. Is, is basically for settings where a person in the care and custody of someone can't, can't run, they've got to stay. And a secure, preserved fight, oftentimes used in a hospital setting too, want to secure the room where the person is in, preserve the life of the patient. And if, if, at last, if it's, if it's the last thing you need to do, you got to fight, you got to save yourself. And let's remember that that person responsible must save themselves first so they can protect the person they're uh, caring for. It's the same thing on flights when the flight attendant says a parent must put on the mask first and then put the child's and children's masks on second. Then you have the ALICE Active Shooter Response Program. ALICE is uh, alert, lock down, inform, counter, and evacuate. The five outs are very good. Get out, call out, hide out, keep out, and lastly again, take out the perpetrator if you must do that. 
and the, and the four active shooter response, we went over that already. And then the window of life active shooter response. What is that? What time do you have to make your decisions? What information is coming in? And that's what we talk about on the window of life. Most people are shocked when they hear a gunshot go off. It's common for people to do that. There's first a, a shock, what is that? Secondly, they must immediately decide and figure out what is going on before they can make their plan. So all of that is very, very important, but it goes back to my essential message for this slide. We must train our police officers and our citizens and our workers and employees to be mentally prepared to do what they need to do to survive an active shooter. Next slide. Let's talk about run. You wanna immediately evacuate the area, of course, but you gotta to go to a secure area that the person can't get into. And you don't wanna run into danger, you wanna to run to safety. Don't run back to an area where the perpetrator may be hiding or may be going to move to. Hide, seek a secure place where you can hide and or deny the shooter access. And of course, fight. When your life or the lives of others at risk, you may make the personal decision to try and attack and incapacitate the shooter to survive. Oftentimes people are shot and they survive. Many people who are shot survive. And if it's a coordinated effort to attack that shooter, no matter what you have, everything is a weapon. At the same time, the chances of survival increase dramatically. Next slide. These are more for the patient carriers. Avoid, have a plan ahead of time regarding an escape route that would avoid an active shooter. And when we say plan, you just can't have it written down. You must practice going down that escape route and make sure that escape route is clear. There's been instances where people had an escape route and there was construction doing that escape route. They didn't know that, but they found out because they did the drill and realized that we must plan and understand that our escape route may not always be accessible. Deny, if avoidance is not possible, Find ways to prevent the attacker from gaining access to you and others around you. And we know what that is. Close locked doors, barricade door, uh, doorways with furniture. Do whatever you can to deny that perpetrator access to the space where you are hiding. And lastly, defend. Take action as a last resort. Fight like you've never fought before. Uh, your chances of survival are much better if you fight rather than just being a sitting duck. Next slide. And this is very, very important for employees and citizens to understand. Uh, when law enforcement arrives, uh, we must remain calm and follow instructions. Law enforcement officers, as, as Chief Adcock said, they are going to have in their mindset to get to the perpetrator. They're gonna pass people by who may have already been shot or injured because their, their number one responsibility is to take out the shooter. Drop items in your hand. Important that they see everything that you have in your hand so it's not misinterpreted as a weapon or a gun. Raise your hand and spread your fingers so your hands are clearly visible to law enforcement. Keep your hands visible at all times and avoid quick movements toward officers, such as holding on to them for safety. Don't want to do that. Officer's mindset is to go take out the, uh, the, uh, the perpetrator. And the best thing you can do is follow the instructions of officers Raise your hands, let them know you are not a threat, you are not the shooter, and that you're gonna be out of the way. Avoid pointing, screaming, or yelling, and do not ask questions when evacuating. Just follow the instructions of the officer, do what they say, and evacuate the building. Next slide. 
Yeah, we've talked about a lot of these things and a couple of things I'd like to, to point out. When you're looking at those different uh, techniques, there's many of them, but they all have the same basic concept. They're not, you, they're not really in that, that order. You know, yes, you want to try to escape first and foremost, but if you but but it may be too late. It may be that you walk up and that shooter's right on you. So you may have to immediately go to fight instead of whatever. Or you see Absolutely. the shooter, you can't run, you immediately go to hiding. So they're not, you don't have to follow in the path because they move from place to place. The second thing is, and, and, and I, I really need to stress this, uh, there's no canned program. You can't just say that for every circumstance, this is it. You really need to go into your, your organization. You need to do for a school, you need to, you need to have a very comprehensive school safety assessment. You need to take a look at the school climate and include that. Then you need to build some security systems within the buildings and on campus. You need to make sure that, that, that you, you are making sure that it, whatever plan you put in place is customized. You may have something that says, and Paul, when Paul was substitute teaching, he told me the story, but you may have a plan that says, everybody go down the hall and go hide in the theater. But yet you may have an exit to the building within 10 feet. So you, you'd actually maybe put yourself in greater danger following a canned plan. So remember, yeah. it needs to be customized to your, 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 your classroom, to where you're at, to the, to the age and the limitations of the students, depending on what the circumstances are. That's Bill, the key here. Let me jump in here, Bill, and, and share that story, because I wanted to share that story. Uh, after I retired from the El Paso Police Department as assistant chief and before taking over as an assistant chief in the sheriff's uh, department, I, I did about six months because I've taught at the University of Texas at El Paso for 16 years. I did about six months of substitute teaching because I love to teach and, and keep myself busy. Well, I was, at a, I was at a high school in El Paso and one of the classes I taught in was approximately six feet from a door exiting the building. And there was a drill, an active shooter drill and their instructions and they were canned were to run down the hall approximately 200 feet and hide in a theater. And so they, I, I saw them all turning left and, and doing that. And I said, wait a minute, where are you guys going? So turn right here. This is the quickest, easiest access to leave the building. But to Bill's point and, and to everyone's point, we, these can't be canned. We have to tailor these reactions to the environment that you're in. It's so very, very important. So I want to share that with everybody to Bill's point. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. So what we want to talk about really is how, how do you go about doing your best to prevent these actions? And I think it's very critical. And so you've got to have pre prevention in place. You should have an anonymous reporting systems to be, you really should. You should have uh, uh, the, a process talking about see something, say something. Um, if you're going to prevent it, you have, you have security, physical security things in place that can lock a, a shooter out before they can get in or whatever that case might be. And then uh, working really closely with your with your local authorities or whatever you might have a threat management unit, but on a school campus, you really need to make sure that you have a multidisciplinary team that's looking at any leakage, any words that are going on, what's going on with the students, because it the mental health resources that you bring to those students are going to be critical. Having having a, a behavioral assessment ability on your campuses is going to be very critical. Reacting appropriately to to the different stimulus and building the trust with your students so you get the information. Very few shootings, uh, if any, have not had a precursor of some information that came out. We call it leakage uh, in, in our business. Uh, you wanna switch the slide? Doing it right now, Bill. There you go. Uh, this is just, again, I wanna just reiterate, you gotta tailor 
your response to your, to your environment. Again, vulnerability assessment planning, you continue to review it, you continue to train on it, you continually drill on it. Engineering, that's the, that's the design of the facility, it's making sure what your exits look like, making sure that you have some target hardening rooms that you could go to, making sure that everything is put in place that makes you uh, survive an active shooter event as possible. Uh, education and training, there's a lot of different pieces and parts, but you need to educate and train your staff as well as your students. The, the issue that you see so much in colleges, but more, more particularly in, in high schools and in middle schools and elementary schools, is that that population changes every year and the kids change and they get, they get mature. So you're, you need to be in a perpetual training and education program for your kids. And it needs to be a bigger program and active shooter, uh, active assailant should just be one of many components as you're doing your best to teach these young men and women, these children, how to survive things, what, how, to, how to help one another. And even, even children as young as five years old can do CPR. It just depends on the strength that they have. So you really need to make sure you have a very comprehensive program in place. And again, you need to make sure you're coordinating your drilling, like Michael Dorn said, not just with the police department, but with the fire department, your emergency services in your city, your health department, making sure that we are a community, that we are one and acting together and working very hard. Uh, and, and I think that those are the things that we can do to help to prevent uh, these events. Um, and, and so that's what I would tell you. Next, please. Can, can I make a comment on that, Bill? Also, yeah. uh, when Bill was talking about leakage, uh, the the uh, the Journal of, of Medicine uh, did a study and found out that 65% of active shooters knew the people they were shooting or the place where they were at. They were familiar with them, the the employees, the workplace, or had a relationship in 64, uh, 64, 65%. So it's important to understand uh, what the chief was saying was that there's always leakage somewhere or another, and it always goes back to the basic thing, see something, say something. Thank you, Paul, great, great point. I wanted to point out the crisis continuum. We're talking about leakage and information. There's a pathway to violence. In every one of these cases, there's a pathway. There has to be a reason why the person wants to do this. They're, they're, they're gonna be preparing for it. They're going to be doing these things as a pathway to the, we get to the point where they actually commit these horrendous acts. And what you see here, this is a depiction saying that there's a there's an infliction point. There's a point where, where you can go a little bit further on and there's no return. There's an information gap. We cannot, as, as, as parents, we can't do, as school officials, as emergency management officials, as police officials, you name it, we cannot assess or act upon anything if we don't know about it. But I promise you, if, if we can get programs in place and we have even anonymous reporting, we have social media monitoring, we have a full, full, full court press around prevention type programs, threat assessment and intervention programs, we can, we can avoid ourselves getting into a catastrophic outcome and bring the situation down to a positive outcome. We can get many of these, these individuals some very quick help and get them, get them back on track. It's, it's very possible, we see it all the time, it's, 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 it's huge. The other thing I'd like to point out to you is that when it comes to K-12 shootings, the studies that are out there show that this contagion, contagion uh, effect is in place more so with K-12 shootings than virtually any other type of mass shootings. And probably that's because it's so horrendous that there's pure media attention over and over again. And, and, and some of these shooters, they particularly just want that, 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 that media attention, but more importantly, they want to become infamous. 
And so that's why you have to be real careful about when it's particularly in K through 12 that we get we get some things in place pretty quick. Uh, it's just it's just a horrible situation. But these are some things we can do to prevent uh, active shooters, and and we you know we're glad to help you as much as we can in, in whatever we have in place. Um, that's all, uh, Paul. Do you have anything you want to add? I think it's our last slide. No, I think that was good. And we'll come back to you guys. Uh, the one thing that we found, we've had a lot of phone calls, quote, off the record regarding the recent events. Uh, my son, the, the, the doctor that serves my son's school, and actually my son was to have a physical examination on the Wednesday following the Sunday when uh, Dr. Chen heroically put himself between the shooter and elderly people at a church that's about five minutes from my home right now. Um, uh, we've been able to talk to a lot of people and talk to a lot of people uh, who are with big organizations. And we do a lot of training of, of folks that are private details that are taking care of uh, um, uh, of leaders in the community and do a, kind of a deep dive med tech program with uh, emergency medicine doctors from UCI, UCLA, UCSF and with Dr. Boats. And the one thing that we, uh, I, I cannot overemphasize is what Michael said and what you all said. This has to be tailored to your organization. Number one. Number two, the deliberative practice, to use a term that Dr. Boats probably says, right, Bill, every week, every week we talk about deliberative practice to maintain competency currency. And um, one of the prior recordings of Vicki, and then all of a sudden, uh, ambulances came through and we started back over. The first thing, three words she said was drill, drill, drill. And that's the thing that we're seeing as we go out to, to churches, schools, and organizations like institutes and scientific organizations and schools, there's not the deliberative practice. They might've had a good program at some point, but as you say, Bill, so valuable, the turnover in these schools is so great and the fact that if something's not written down and incorporated, you know, 72 hours after they hear it, the military has shown that when we teach people, they lose about 70% of what they learned. And then you throw into that the fog of war and adrenaline, and you kind of see where we are. So thank you so much for really emphasizing uh, uh, the fact that they need to be tailored, can't pull out some canned program and really engaging with the, the other leaders in the community. And thank you guys very much. We're going to come back to you here shortly. Um, uh, Randy Steiner is a great, great contributor, as are both Bill and Paul. Uh, he's a contributor to our community here in Southern California as the Director of Emergency Preparedness at the University of California, Irvine. He's also a community leader through, uh, through Boy Scouts um, he also has a history of uh, being a great contributor as a best-selling author, uh, and I'll have you, you, Randy, just give a brief bio of your uh, of your book and um, and your father's work as a result of a plane crash when you were just a, a young person. And then, Randy, what we'd like you to do, uh, we want to make sure that we don't go extend too far on our time. You have sent us the uh, CSU, the, Cal the, the California State University um, uh, program on active shooter, which is a great video. I agree with you. We're posting it on our website. But Randy, would you please uh, just give us, uh, and I'll advance slides for you, just give us a, a, quick, a quick bio um, and then uh, why that film might be important, and then I'll advance slides for you and we could come back for a generous time of interaction at the end yeah thanks chuck and thanks uh, chief wilcox and uh paul appreciate it <clears throat> um 
building on 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 what Chief and Paul were were saying, this is sort of our our um, preparedness measures that we're looking at at UCI. But back to uh, what Charles was saying about um, some, I, I was involved my in a, sort of the advent of of a system of medical care called uh, advanced trauma life support. When I say involved, it was because I was a, a passenger in an airplane that had crashed that my father was piloting, and he was a, a contributor to the development of advanced trauma life support, which is a you know standardized system of care in emergency rooms and trauma centers throughout the United States. Um, and that really got me interested, you know, not only in, in emergency management, but also in um, first aid, CPR. I'm an instructor in both of those. I'm a Stop the Bleed instructor, and uh, I'm also a post-certified instructor. I, I train uh, our, our police officers at UCI um, on uh, really primarily Stop the Bleed, chest seals, uh, tourniquet applications, including how to put a tourniquet on, on themselves. If that's necessary, so we, you know, and all that is based around this active shooter kind of scenario. Um, you know, that's really the the sort of the 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 focus that we have when we look at that, particularly to stop the bleed. Um, but we look at you know, for at UCI, we really look at at, at understanding the threat of of active shooter. Like Chief Wilcox said, um, there. Or, I'm sorry, Chief Adcock said uh, was you know the, these a lot of times you can. You can project that these incidents are going to occur based on threats or, or other things and uh, situations, particularly in higher education. You know, a lot of times the, the perpetrators of these kind of are, are disgruntled students, um, you know, that there is a, uh, a potential uh, crumb trail that you can, you know, take back to the student, but not always. Um, the fact is that uh, universities are, are you know, convenient targets for anybody who would be wanting to perpetrate uh, an active shooter event. You know, they're, they're public spaces. They, they, you know, anybody can come to onto the university. Now we have policies. You're not allowed to bring weapons or things like that, but uh, weapons are easy to conceal. Um, but somebody coming on campus and walking through campus who isn't a student there, what isn't an atypical thing and won't necessarily arouse a lot of suspicion, you know, at the, at the higher level. Um, these universities are difficult to, to harden and secure. They're very open spaces. There's many buildings, uh, you know, in these areas, a lot of, you know, big classroom facilities that hold a lot of people. Uh, you know, the idea that you can somehow build a wall around a university and secure it from an active shooter just is, is a fallacy. They're very difficult um, to defend, you know, initially from an active shooter. So that, that intelligence piece obviously becomes way more uh, important than being able to project the the possibility of that event, um, but that's not always a possibility. Um, you know, there are large populations there. An active shooter with uh, adequate weapons could create a lot of ca uh, carnage on a, on a campus. There's a lot of people, a lot of times there's people that get attacked. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a really a target-rich environment for somebody bent on, on creating a mass casualty event. Um, you know, you look at the Virginia Tech, that's a Norris Hall down there where that sh shooting occurred, you know, the 32 people that were killed, it occurred in four lecture halls in a single building, and that's 30, 32 people were, were uh, executed then. Um, that was, uh, um, you know, it, the, the, the shooter went chained the doors, he made it difficult for law enforcement to respond uh, at a single location. We've got, you know, 50-some academic buildings at UCI. So um, hardening those or securing those buildings to, to make them impervious to an active shooter are very difficult to do. Uh, next slide, please. 
Oops, sorry. Uh, there you go. So your preparedness and our ability to respond is really a key part of our our preparedness strategy for active shooters with the, the knowledge that if we can get the intelligence to prevent an active shooter situation, obviously we are going to go on that. But if the situation happens, you know, what if it does happen? What can we do? Um, you know, we have to have, uh, you know, plans in place to deal with this. We have an active shooter annex that is completely dedicated to the active shooter situation that we could pull out. Um, you know, active shooter training is key. That that CSU video that you mentioned, Chuck, that's one of the you know the best video active shooter videos that I've seen that CSU put across. And we're actually adapting that uh, as our active shooter training video here on campus. So CSU is very generous with letting other institutes of higher education use that. But it's very uh, you know focused on the higher education community, particularly students, and it's very down to the point. You know, the run, hide, fight. Um, uh, training is the training that we use, uh, that we generally go out there, although you know, we do have a medical center um, that's not directly on our campus at this point. We're building a new one where the, the avoid, deny, and defend um, uh, philosophy we also is, are putting out there at those medical centers just for the same reasons that Paul talked about. Um, drills and exercises, we're constantly drilling uh, with an, an annual or an active shooter um, theme to exercises. We try to do those at least every couple of years, sometimes even more. A lot of times our communities or our uh, individual units within the campus uh, will ask us to do those, those trainings on uh, you know at least an annual basis. So um, keeping it in people's minds and having those training resources and exercises available to our campus community is really important just to kind of keep the, the thought process in their minds. You know, part of our training as well um, is part of the, uh, the, the bystander care training. You know, our, um, we're, we're in the process of, of putting stop the bleed kits out on campus and, and training people for that. My son is an is a Eagle Scout candidate. That's actually his Eagle project is to uh, put together a whole bunch of stop the bleed kits for the campus and a uh, care case that's a portable unit with an AED in it. Um, so we're really starting to focus on that and getting people trained up. We have a group on campus of um, EMTs who are students. They're all certified EMTs and they have a student group. Um, they conduct uh, active shooter trainings or, or I'm sorry, stop the bleed trainings all over campus. So we're getting the people trained up and we're putting the resources out there. Um, you know, it's it, I had heard a statistic that at the, the Route 91 shooting in, in Las Vegas, that the majority of people who died uh, from that shooting were, were bled out. So, you know, the, putting those stop the bleeding resources there, I think, are going to, is going to be integral to, to saving lives in the future. Um, coordinating with law enforcement, obviously, on our, our, uh, our campus, we're very tight-knit with our, our law enforcement groups and emergency management work very, very close and hand-in-hand -in, -hand in our planning processes for them. A lot of times when we do general emergency preparedness training on campus. We'll bring in our, our training officer in to do an active shooter training as well. Um, and, uh, you know, coordinate them with our plans, make sure that our plans are well coordinated with law enforcement and that they, they have those, you know, those plans, uh, not only our plans, but their plans situated as well, that we're not, you know, bonking heads in the middle of an incident with regards to how we would respond. Uh, mutual aid is always a big thing. Obviously, we're, we're very close with the city of Irvine and Orange County Sheriff's Department. 
Um, we have those mutual aid resources in place so that if we did have an active shooter, we would very quickly bring the Calvary to campus and uh, secure the area um, and go through that process of, of neutralizing the threat. Um, but also really the, the sort of explanation point on all of this is building a culture of preparedness around the campus, which is something my department really tries to do is, is keep it prepared for all things, you know, that all hazard preparedness. Um, active shooters heavy in people's minds. I mean, I had talked to a professor a couple of weeks ago about some testing we were doing on a system. Um, he had mentioned the Uvalde and the, the Buffalo shootings. Um, and I did a little bit of research that, that this was two weeks ago. We had 272 mass casualty shootings uh, in the United States since the beginning of the year. So, you know, that active shooter threat is part of the mindset of our campus community um, in that preparedness culture. And that's a good thing because if we're thinking about it, then we can take steps to try and protect ourselves. Um, and using all of those methods that, that Chief Adcox and, and, and Paul Cross talked about, um, that's all part of that training process is getting getting people really to become experts in, in response to an active shooter. We'll do everything we can to prevent it, but if it happens, people have to know what to do. Uh, next slide. Um, some of the tools and technology that we've implemented at UCI are, are very, very helpful um, in terms of our ability to respond to an active shooter situation. Uh, we do have a shot spotter um, uh, system on campus where we can very quickly triangulate a, and very accurately uh, a um, within about a three meter uh, a square, um, find out almost immediately where shots are being fired. These systems are designed to you know, specifically detect uh, you know, gunshots. They know if it's a gunshot, not just a, a firecracker or something like that. Um, so we can very quickly triangulate a location of a shooting event on campus. We have the capability to lock down most of our buildings on campus where from our dispatch, we do have you know, a building that's, that's being impacted by an active shooter. We can lock that building down. Not only can we secure rooms where people are, but we can keep people from coming into the building and potentially getting themselves in trouble. That lockdown system does not impact the exit capability of the of the camp of the, the building or any of those doors people can still exit the building obviously if they are in a, a, a situation with an active shooter but we can also you know better secure that building and um you know keep people from potentially going into a building where an active shooter situation is happening um we have our zot alert system that's our mass notification system most universities i don't know if any university doesn't have their mass notification system um, but that's we something we can use to uh, you know, really get the, the message very quickly out to the campus that a shooting has occurred at this location. We use a system called Genesis, which uh, makes it very easy to very quickly put a message or we could have a prescriptive message to very quickly enter in location information and get that, uh, that, that situation out to the, the university. Obviously, we don't, it's not just for active shooters, we can use it for many things, but for an active shooter event, it's very effective. Tied into that system is our alertus beacons. These are uh, beacons like the one you see in the in the photograph here um, that we have in all of our big classrooms on campus. By big classrooms, I mean all classrooms that have a capa capacity of over 25 students. Uh, so we have a lot of these campuses or these uh, these beacons all over campus. Um, when a ZOT alert is sent out, they're automatically wired into the system and the alert goes out. These beacons, they flash, they, they uh, alarm. And then the the message for this auto alert is directly on those those beacons. Um, now, in an active shooter situation where we know we have people potentially locked down, 
at, um, denying entry in a classroom, we can communicate directly with those people if it's a large classroom through these beacons when we know we can try or, or target specific beacons for specific locations and get information uh, to to the, the the people in that room so that they're not you know panicked or 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 wondering what's happening you know the the last thing we want somebody to do is open a door and stick their head out to see what's going on um, so in this situation we can continue to say the situation is ongoing remain calm remain in place and give people direct instructions uh, we're looking to upgrade these beacons where we can actually have voice communication between them as well so that's another uh, uh, technology that we're we're using. Um, and then we have our emergency action plans, which are, are we've, we've recently um, uh, standardized throughout the campus that have, you know, not only the, the uh, evacuation instructions and, and, and links to resources that people can get for all kinds of various incidences, including active shooter. Um, but we all, they're also, uh, you know, define routes out of the buildings, safe locations away from the buildings. We put our assembly areas generally a large, a long way from buildings. Now, an active shooter, of course, the open assembly areas is a is not where the way you want to go. But um, we do have uh, areas of refuge that we can direct people to you know, using our other systems. Um, other things we're looking to implement are our uh, you know mass notification uh, LRAD system, long range acoustic speaker system on campus that would allow us to to provide you know ultimate uh, messaging throughout the campus, but. Obviously, messaging in, in, a, in a situation like this is, is very important, but also uh, very focused messaging, the ability to contact a small group of people outside of the larger campus community so that everybody's not getting you know, varying messages about what, what the situation is. And we can divvy that message up around the campus and tell one part of the campus to do one thing and the other part of the campus to do another thing if that's tactically the, uh, the, the way to go. So we've implemented all those technologies and we continue to... To, to build those plans and, and to prepare, find ways, you know, see something, say something, we get that out there as well. All of the, the things that, that um, uh, Chief Adcox talked about, um, you know, we, we try to get out there to the campus community and give them all the, the research, resources and the knowledge base that they need that God forbid this ever happens in, on our campus that we'll be able to uh, save as many lives as possible. Well, thank you so much, uh, Randy. We're gonna come back to you, Bill, uh, Paul, Jennifer, uh, those of us that uh, those of you that are uh, that are live with us uh, today, um, this, the next topic really is teaming up with the community. And a lot of our folks that are in our uh, program uh, want to know how can I get my organization motivated to put some money in in this. Uh, one of the things that we know is that the standard of care is a legal term. Uh, this is a term that you heard Michael Dorn talk about, which is uh, what is the what is the level of care in the community? The liability is growing. We use this technique to get our although our rescue stations here in Southern California, we seek out donors who will donate them to a community. You have no idea how much we have to debate and 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 work with the local attorneys in communities to convince them that their, uh, that their liability is greater now because we've put them in, that they have to keep up 
with the, the standard of care. And once we got critical mass, we've had coves that are adjacent to each other where one said, no, we, you have a donor, but we're not interested. And when they found out the cove and the beach and the community next door put two rescue stations in, they came back and said, well, now as you know, and I always love the quote from, from, uh, uh, from, um, uh, from our sage from Omaha, uh, Warren Buffett, who gave me a quote one time for a speech. He said, it's only when the tide goes out that you find out who's swimming naked. And when these events happen, you find out what you could have done. So we now know that we need to have public rescue gear available, automatic defibrillators, stop the bleed kits. But if we're not, as, as you've heard from th all three of our speakers from law enforcement, if we are not drilling and training, uh, then that gear is useless. If we are training and drilling, but we don't have the gear, we're still swimming, uh, you know, that when the tide goes out. And, and so what can our youth and young adults do? This is an example of a course that we put on at Saddleback Church here in Southern California at their teen center, which you see in the center of the, of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, of the building. We had multiple stations where after the didactic portion of, this, of the program of Stop the Bleed, CPR, et cetera, was given, then they had to go around to each rescue station and prove that they had the skills, that they passed the skills for on the lower left corner, CPR, that they understood how to get a drowning victim out of the water, which you see uh, as we go kind of clockwise uh, uh, around, uh, around the, the image you see before you. And those that are listening to the podcast, uh, we, we taught how to, get, how to get somebody out of the water who might be drowning and save ourselves during the, pro during the process called reach, throw, row, go. CPR uh, and chest compressions, the use of Narcan for uh, opioid overdose, the use of uh, EpiPens, the use of the Stop the Bleed gear. Uh, uh, you see, for those that are watching the video, the Heimlich maneuver in the lower right at the three o'clock position. And then finally, how to prevent drive over accidents at schools, uh, at churches, uh, and at homes by showing uh, how little one sees through the rearview mirror or a backup camera and how easily it can be to have these 100 drive over accidents which occur uh, at our schools. Um, as we go to the next uh, section, how can we support our first responders? Uh, we've done a number of programs uh, addressing the fact that our first responders are operating without a safety net right now. The safety net has been damaged prior to COVID. It's worse now. And the safety net of our uh, EMS, fire, police, and emergency care physicians and nurses is tattered. And how can we work together with them? Well, the answer is, is we can team up with them. You heard the mutual aid concept, and we work with multiple lifeguard groups uh, who have mutual aid agreements. And what we've done is teamed up with every lifeguard group from San Onofre, which is south of where I live, to uh, Newport Beach, which is 19 miles north of where uh, I live, and the schools that you see below and the, and, and, and the, uh, the playing fields, and said, let's team up with the first responders to find out how rapidly it would take where would they go? Where's the rally point if an active shooter event occurs? And guess what? Not one of them knew where to go. And that's why uh, it's so important to team up with them and work together. So let me stop there before we go to Dr. Greg Boats. I want to allow enough time for you to hear the, the introduction to a very nice uh, program that he uh, and I produced that he 
he actually spoke as our expert on on how families can apply our five R plan. But I want to uh, go back to Paul, Bill, um, uh, Jennifer, uh, and Randy to comment on each other's presentations and what Michael Dorn said. Uh, uh, Bill, would you would you start off? Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Paul's not with us. He had he he's at an FBI conference that he's helping lead. He's the past president of the FBI alumnus here in in, uh, in Texas, but. Uh, that said, uh, there's a couple of things that that that, uh, uh, that that I'd like to point out. That is, if you think about, there's really three basic things when you three types of shootings that are going to occur, broad categories in a public school. It's going to be it's going to be the large scale random attacks that are planned in advance, like you saw in Uvalde. It's going to be the one where it's a smaller attack, but it's a grievance grievance driven. It's very targeted, and then there's going to be the one where some somebody brings a gun to to, to school. And, and then while they're at school, something happens and they just decide to use the gun. That's the least of what we see. That said, these large scale attacks that you saw, and most of them take the most lives in our elementary schools, that's what the study showed. What you see in those attacks is, is, is generally, it's, it's an act of suicide. There's not an exit plan. That's why you, these are such dangerous people. Even, even if you look at attacks beyond that, Walmart and El Paso, there's really, they may try to run or something, but there's really no true exit plan. And these are these, you know, in our in our profession, there's there's acts of things. There's incidents called suicide by cop. The police officer is a suicide instrument. So this is one of the really things that's important, and this is why it's really important that these particular plans be tailored and very specific to your environment, uh, to to your location, uh, to your student body group. Uh, to the facility that you're in, and 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 those systems that uh, that that uh, that you brought up earlier, Randy, is is so critical because they will give you the information as to where this where this shooter's at. It gives you more information to work with. And then the second thing is again uh, having everybody that's going to be involved in one of these situations, not just not just with deliberate practice. Um, and, and drilling and with the deliberate practice, but also thinking about the mental conditioning, letting folks know that's why you, you use loud sounds like blanks and you do different things that so that folks can understand and, and know what to do. Uh, you have to condition ourselves so that we're just not purely in fear. So there's a lot that will go into it, but again, tailored mental conditioning, having the systems in place, particularly like Randy talked about, uh, and, and, and really working in a collaborative fashion with all of the services, not only the school system, uh, but your local authorities, your local, your local fire department, bringing the community together as a whole, and then really preparing for, for, for the after the shooting. So how do we get there and save lives? How do we have Stop the Bleed kits stored away throughout these facilities? If you're in a large classroom, there should be Stop the Bleed kits in the, in the, in the, in the coat room doesn't matter. We have to have these supplies on our campuses and these, these students and these faculty and so forth need to be understand how to use them. And uh, so there's a lot to it. I know we've covered a lot today, but, but I think Michael Dorn has, has hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think a lot of the work that's being done around, around the, uh, the country, particularly Randy, and what the work that you're doing is, is just fabulous. And Chuck, just thank you for bringing this to all of our attention.
Well, thank you, Bill. And uh, I don't want to blow smoke your ways. Uh, I, sometimes because my enthusiasm when I work with such great people like you and Randy and Paul and, and Vicki and, and, and Greg, that I maybe overly, uh, overly compliment you. But I, wa I want to say that I recently had the experience of going to a faith-based organization, uh, one where we had made contributions they knew we were coming. We were organized to, we brought 12 people. We brought six scouts, six dads. We brought more than that, I guess. We brought then two instructors to be able to instruct the staff at an organization and not one staff person showed up. This is an organization where we're actually contributing rescue stations, dark green dollars, and no one showed. And so what I'm experiencing in some organizations is just failed leadership. The leaders did not make they you know there are three parts to leadership i always say leadership's really easy to understand it's when somebody can get a group of people to a destination they couldn't get to on their own the the intersection of performance is at leadership best practices and technologies thank you uh randy for showing us technologies and both of you talked about best practices but without leaders it fails and I've seen it and I'm seeing it fail at organizations and it's leadership failure. It's not knowing what we can do about active shooters. It's for the greatest number of fatalities. It's actually the lack of leadership to focus on the drills, the deliberate work and then uh, applying the resources. So I just wanted to get at that in to tell you, Randy, thank you for being a great leader. Thank you, Bill, for being a great leader. Randy, your other comments, but I just couldn't let it wait to, to say the biggest gap we see is leadership. That's the biggest gap we see in terms of being able to implement at least these new best practices. We don't have all of them nailed, but at least the ones we know about. Randy, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Chuck, that that's, you know, having the entire organization on board with the planning effort is is key. Planning, you know, uh, Chief Adcox mentioned that, that it's, you know, it's planning in a vacuum, not training on tools, is, is worthless. It's, a, it's an absolute waste of time. So bringing the entire organization on board, I think is a, you know, a critical component to, you know, getting people to take these sort of things seriously. Just like you alluded to, Chuck, this not having people show up saying, oh, this isn't my time, or I'm not going to be able to do anything, or I'm going to be too busy, you know, getting out. Well, it's only a matter of time until it's your coworker or your friend or a colleague who's laying there on the ground bleeding out because they've been shot, um, you know, before kind of make the realization that yeah you, you may actually be involved in something like that so you know having that that um the the buy-in from leadership you know at the very beginning of the the planning process and the preparedness process is huge and you know if you have that buy-in you know the the resources uh, become easier to come by you know everybody's in a budget crisis and you know there's never enough money for anything but you know, when you when you get that buy-in from leadership and they really understand what you're doing with your planning efforts and how you're trying to apply them to the, the university or to whatever organization you're part of, uh, it makes it a lot easier to get those kind of uh, resources and that 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 leadership to say, you know, that you will be attending this training. And you know, it's and that's the great thing about things like stop the bleed training or, or active shoot training. They're very simple classes they're usually engaging you know it's it's very easy to engage a, a group of people when you're talking about the active shooter threat and the response you know the run hide fight um you know uh particularly on the fight part you know i always get people's attention with that when i, I used to be a marine so everything you know is a potential weapon 
um, you know, training people with that and making people kind of who never thought about that before, never did have that kind of compulsion, um, you know, that realization, you see people's eyes kind of bright up like the pin in your hand, you know, you could do some damage with that if you had to. Um, but, the, you know, the, uh, the um, you know, stop the bleed training as well. It's very hands-on. We do like the training we do with uh, our police department. Um, you know, we make them put a, a tourniquet on their own arm and give it a couple of cranks so they kind of see how it feels. And we make them do it on the prosthetic leg. And we, you know, we go through the entire process and they're very hands-on with it. We show them a chest seal and say, this is how it goes on. Um, you know, you look for injury and exit wounds, that, that kind of way, the way to treat those. And that's very, you know, hands-on interactive kind of training. And our, our student organizations that do the, that training as well, they, they, they do that similar type of thing where people learn, people don't learn by sitting in a chair. People learn out by getting their hands on things. And a doing absolutely. Absolutely. That's, 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 you have to integrate that into your processes, uh, you know, drills and everything as well, you know, make sure that people who come to your drills, you know, they have something to do, that they're, they're, they're part of the, the, the process. There, a lot of drills go on where it's like the focus is on law enforcement, the focus is on firefighters or EMTs, and, you know, people who you may have there as, as bystanders or players, you know, really don't do a lot except they're standing around and watch and giving those people something to do and making sure that they exercise that training at some point in the exercise is also, also incredibly important, so. Yeah, well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for emphasizing that. We're going to finish on time today. I want to invite those that uh, are listening to this is the podcast. We are going to play the entire section of uh, Dr. Boats, who has done a beautiful job of saying, okay, um, how do you create a family safety plan that anticipates earthquakes, active shooter events, fire? opioid issues. And the reason we did that is because of uh, our COVID work over the last 24 months, we stumbled into creating a community of practice of the families of caregivers, researchers, law enforcement of our, our best medical centers. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, uh, Randy and, and Dr. Fox at UCI for all promoting that. What I wanted to do is give, Jenny, would you like to comment as to what the gentlemen have just said, or uh, it, we're going to show the first three minutes of Dr. Boats' uh, uh, 24-minute program and then give you a chance to close. Journey, would you like to comment now and the close, or would you like to wait to the close? I can just wait for the close. I, I couldn't hear it. My computer screen was frozen, so I missed some things. Okay, no worries. Uh, I'm gonna uh, now move to Dr. Uh, Dr. Boats. Uh, who's really uh, a brilliant, uh, and uh, forgive my enthusiasm for the support of he and, and, and uh, Chief Adcox, who have just been the moral and, and, and best practice leaders that we've been able to rely on to build the MedTech program, uh, of which uh, Randy Steiner's son, James, is now a beneficiary. And we're all working together with a, uh, with a bunch of young people in schools. Dr. Boats is professor of anesthesiology and critical care at MD Anderson. He's also an adjunct clinical professor uh, of anesthesia at Stanford. Um, he's one of the few critical care, if any, uh, I think he may be the only critical care doctor who's done a full fellowship in simulation. And he is the one that gave us the concept of deliberative practice. So I'm going to play the initial component for those of you that are live today. I'm going to play the full program and it'll be broken down uh, into, into sections for those that are listening to the uh, podcast. And we'll come back to our reactors.
Dr. Boats, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Uh, the topic is a serious one. Um, we'd like to know what your message is to organizations regarding uh, what they can do in this area in this area of active shooter events and lethal force uh, incidents. We know that the military have taught us that we don't rise to the level of our knowledge, but we fall to the level of our training. Um, what would you like to tell leaders at organizations? Well, I think you're you're absolutely right about our performance in very stressful situations. It may be somewhat different than what you planned. And so organizations have a responsibility to provide not only the knowledge and information to their employees about uh, what the risks are and what they you know, would want their employees to do in situations like this, but more importantly, they have to do due diligence in providing not only planning, but practice in those skills periodically, because we know the best way to stay ready is to have deliberative practice sessions where people get a chance to practice those skills. Uh, just saying them and listening to them is not enough. Uh, you wanna build muscle memory so that people will both evaluate their environment and have a plan ahead of time about what they're going to do if something uh, should happen, if some sort of emergency should happen in their environment. Dr. Boats, as we think about families and we think about this idea of competency currency and we think about our family safety plans, you and our team, ranging from our teenagers right through to our most senior advisors, all agree that the five R's are a great way to tackle how a family can be ready for any type of an emergency, be it an earthquake, fire, uh, lethal force incidents, being in a, in, a, in a restaurant when something may go bad or a bank. Uh, 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 and we used it and it's been very effective with our COVID work. Can you give us just an overarching recommendation regarding families and what they can do to have a safety plan and be ready? Sure, I think the 5R approach is a very structured approach that's easy to follow. It gives you ideas about where to uh, focus attention in having a plan and executing the plan, uh, no matter what the cause, no matter what the issue. And I think that's why it's been so effective across many, many considerations of different types of events, including the pandemic or violence or um, you know any sort of alteration in normal operations uh, that might happen in your family, in your organization, or anywhere you might be, say in a, in a shopping mall or in, in your church or at a school, any sort of location, there should be uh, an easy application of the five R's in order to generate and deploy a safety plan. So Dr. Boats, you and I both are instructors and, 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 and also champion the Stop the Bleed program led by and developed uh, uh, by the American College of Surgeons after Sandy Hook. And, um, uh, and, and also uh, you are a master uh, trainer uh, of uh, CPR, first aid, use of the AEDs. Is it your recommendation for the first R, readiness, 
that every family should really know how to do CPR, have what they need to do that, and also uh, learn Stop the Bleed and have that rescue gear available as part of their readiness? And then what other readiness issues do you think are important for the first R? Well, I think, you know, the first R is really a very important uh, element in the entire structure. Readiness is something that we can work on ahead of time and uh, be ready to deploy when an event occurs. And having bystander rescue care knowledge and skills is essential to a safety plan. Being able to recognize when a medical emergency is taking place and being able to intervene with simple interventions like doing CPR, like stopping the bleed with the techniques that are taught by the American College of Surgeons course are essential. We know the delay between the time of an event and the time when professional first responders can arrive at the scene can be some time, maybe eight to 12 minutes across many places in the United States. People can die in that amount of time without an intervention. And so learning bystander CPR, learning stop the bleed techniques, and learning other interventions that are appropriate for bystanders to use, such as the, the skills that we teach in the MedTAC bystander rescue care courses are essential to your readiness plan. Let's talk about the concept of response. And uh, you enlightened me when you described having a safety word or an emergency word, and that a family should be able to have a way of communicating privately and confidentially if something is going on and the family needs to know that they must call 911. That's one uh, area. Address that, and we'll address a couple more of the issues that, uh, in terms of response to an event unfolding. Well, you're absolutely right. That's a key element. Um, I've learned this from my colleagues in law enforcement, and that is that situations that can become apparently dangerous quickly are not always apparent to everybody at the same time. And so there should be a communication word that you agree upon ahead of time that you can use to focus people's attention to, this is no longer normal operations. There's something serious happening and you need to pay attention now and you maybe have to deploy the first three or four actions that we've discussed without me saying another word. So for instance, in law enforcement, you know, perhaps there's a law enforcement officer who is involved in undercover work or has made major arrests of, uh, of dangerous people. And if they happen to encounter those people in a public space when they're off duty, especially with their family, they may need to go from family operations to law enforcement operations very quickly. And they want their family to be able to understand that and move according to plan. I have a colleague whose husband was uh, a Houston police officer and she always knew whenever they were in public, if he said a certain word, he was being recognized or he recognized someone and she needed to move to the nearest exit and get away from there in case something violent occurred. At that point, he didn't have to worry about her. She deployed that safety plan immediately and they didn't have to talk about it. It didn't take time to bring someone up to speed. It was an immediate response based on that pre-designed word or phrase that they use in their family as part of their preparedness plan. As we think about response, 
We also need to know that we have gear. There should be certain gear that we might want to have in our car. For instance, in our MedCare, Med, uh, MedTac care uh, kits that we keep in uh, our automobiles, we have a device that can break a glass window and cut a, a seat belt if we are involved in a motor vehicle accident and need to get someone out. We have uh, two tourniquets and all of the gear if we had to take care of at least two people or two, take care of two people with severe bleeding or perhaps one that has very severe bleeding and have uh, the combat gauze, the coagulation gauze, wound packing gauze, uh, Sharpie pen to write the, the, the time on, on the tourniquet uh, and have gloves and masks available so that we can take care of someone. Is it reasonable to uh, have a, a first aid kit uh, for the family in, in every vehicle and to have one uh, in, in the home, perhaps, that may be more comprehensive in case of an emergency? Well, I think that's a personal decision for families to make about what the risks are and what their vulnerability might be, both inside and outside the home. I think that if you are prepared to provide that level of rescue care, you should have the appropriate tools at hand. I'm not suggesting that you have, you know, a, a hiking backpack full of supplies. That's not necessarily the best approach, you know, but even family emergencies that lead to bleeding events or injuries uh, require you to have a certain amount of equipment available to safely intervene until professional first responders can arrive. So having the basic equipment for hemorrhage control and for uh, safety in a vehicle uh, is important. I know that my mother uh, for many, many years kept an earthquake preparedness kit in the back of her car because we lived in Southern California and the threat of an earthquake was always there. And she always made sure that it was up to date and she had the right equipment because she understood that our family was at risk for an earthquake and she wanted to have the right equipment and tools available should they be needed. That's the essence of a family plan. So as we talk about family plans, and we also talk about these terrible active shooter events, and when we may be on the job or with our family at a public uh, arena, such as the Las Vegas event, or um, uh, in, in any of these really serious scenarios, and coming back to the active shooter uh, events and the, the, the uh, lethal force incidents and, and uh, uh, that kind of scenario, can you address some of the things that we teach in our MedTAC program uh, to law enforcement about self-aid, buddy aid, scene safety, um, and the fact that, you know, who, who do we take care of first if multiple people are injured uh, in order to make sure to save the most lives? Do you want to maybe kind of address that and how important it is to maybe be aware of these things more than we have before because of the frequency of these incidents? There's no question that the frequency and the impact of these events have skyrocketed in the last few years. Um, it seems that in a frequent, on a frequent basis, we're seeing more and more of these events taking place across our communities in a variety of different settings, in schools, in churches, in shopping malls. I think it behooves us to have a plan for how we will respond if one of these events occurs in a place where we are gathering. And I think that uh, one of the things we should focus on when such an event occurs is perhaps using one of the strategies that was made popular by the 
city of Houston, which is run, hide, fight. There are many, many different strategies that are being used to address these sudden violent events that can occur. No matter what the training, no matter what the program, the essence is still the same. The first thing you should do is recognize that an event is happening immediately and act and act now for your safety and the safety of your family. That may mean evacuating that area as quickly as possible to stay away from harm. It may mean hiding if there's not a way to get away from that area so that you're not seen by the person who's causing the aggression. And at last resort, if all else fails, to fight aggressively and unendingly to try to save yourself and others, to try to disrupt this person's plan for violence. I think one thing I've learned from my colleagues in law enforcement is that the majority of people that plan these attacks in public places have an idea in mind how it's going to go. And when that plan gets disrupted, they don't often have a plan B. So things that you do that disrupt their plan, like running away, hiding and not being seen, or fighting with whatever you have at hand, disrupts their plan. And that might be what's needed in order to increase the survival of you and all of those around you. Dr. Boats, as we, as we think about recovery, uh, so after rescue, we talk about recovery, and I'm gonna introduce, although we're talking about active shooter events and these lethal force, force incidents, uh, the opioid overdose crisis is off the charts. Just in the last two or three weeks, I've been at graduation parties and heard of uh, young people who have uh, passed away by suicide uh, using them, and a number of them that have died accidentally by fentanyl. And when um, someone who sells counterfeit oxycodone pills or laces cocaine with fentanyl or puts fentanyl in uh, something that young people take and they pass away, the grief that strikes their parents is not unlike the grief of losing someone to an active shooter event. Um, the pusher who sold this in my book is, is, is no less uh, a lethal force as the guy that shot a child with an, with, with a, with an AR-15. I think these, these are killers, these people that are putting fentanyl in these things. That's, we're all aware of the powerful nature of this to shut down the respiratory system. And in fact, paradoxically, those that have, uh, have had deaths who've sold this stuff actually get popular for having uh, the higher impact drug. And they, instead of market forces pushing them out of the market, it actually enhances it. And now we have more deaths. So as we look at recovery of family members of uh, law enforcement officers, professional first responders, families that have lost loved ones through these incidents, you take care of a lot of very sick people in the ICU who lose family members. Um, uh, isn't it critical that we recognize the importance of the ministry of presence and that we who are friends or even acquaintances need to rally around those people that are going through this terrible time of grief as, as uh, Pastor Rick Warren addressed in a recent message about, uh, about helping a friend in deep pain, we really need to step up. Is that a reasonable uh, thing that we should at least be prepared to do if, we, if, we, if our family loses somebody uh, or 
knows somebody who lost somebody. Well, absolutely. That's part of a recovery plan that should be uh, based on uh, your relationship with people and your um, sense of caring for those who are hurting. That should be uh, just as important in your recovery plan as many of the other elements that we teach. Dr. Boats, can you, as an expert in um, using these very powerful uh, drugs, can you just give your short PSA on the lethal threat of fentanyl to our families and our children? Sure. Um, as a practicing anesthesiologist and intensive care doctor, I use fentanyl in my patients on a regular basis. Uh, I've used fentanyl my entire career. It is both a useful drug for medical purposes and an absolutely lethal drug for recreational uses. And the scary thing is we don't know what compounds the drug dealers have put fentanyl into. And you can't tell ahead of time per se. And so something that you may acquire at a party at school from a friend that appears to be a normal substance that you may have used in the past may in fact be laced with fentanyl. And the scary thing is fentanyl is a very, very potent opiate. It's 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And the most significant effect that it has is it stops your breathing it makes your respiratory center just stop. And without oxygen, we know that the brain begins to die in about three to four minutes and other things follow shortly thereafter. And so we need to both focus on the prevention side in, in teaching our kids not to get exposed to any of these substances that may be spiked with fentanyl, but also have a plan for how to respond if in fact it takes place. For a family member, that means perhaps doing artificial respiration in order to keep the oxygen levels up until first responders can get there. If you have Narcan available, then administer it, it's safe. Narcan doesn't do anything except reverse opiate effects you're more likely to drown someone than you are to hurt them with Narcan administration if they in fact aren't having an opiate overdose. But these opiates are lethal. They cause death very quickly. In fact, the statistics show that many kids who overdose on opiates overdose on the first time they've taken it. So they don't have an opportunity for rehabilitation. They don't have an opportunity at a second chance. And so anything we can do as part of our family plan to both recognize the risk and have an open discussion with our kids about the dangers of these opiates and then having a plan for how we will respond if in fact we encounter someone who we believe is having an opiate overdose, including our family members in order to save their life until professional responders can get there to carry on the care that's necessary. These are no joke. They are very, very dangerous drugs and they are pervading our communities in all sorts of ways. 
Thank you, Dr. Boats. The fifth R is resilience. And we like to use the expression that comes from the military and law enforcement of target hardening. Can you describe what target hardening is? And then we'll talk about uh, uh, an example of resilience, which is our uh, in case of emergency checklist using uh, making sure that uh, our kids over 18 have a medical power of attorney in the state where they're going to school in the states where they perhaps are might be at risk for car accidents or whatever may happen that they use their telephone and set it up so that they're when they dial 911 or SOS that uh, that the, the in case of emergency probably uh, parents get contacted that they understand where the level one trauma centers are, wherever they are, just in case they were to be in a car accident or a serious accident. And fourth, for those especially who have medical conditions, why it's important to have on their phone a medical summary of some type so that emergency medicine doctors will know pre-existing conditions. But first off, target hardening, and then why, why is it important that we make sure that we have an in-case of emergency checklist? Well, target hardening is the principle or the idea that you understand your environment, your family situation, and the potential risks that you have no matter where you're going or what you're doing. And doing things to try to reduce the risk or vulnerability at hand. Try to change behaviors that will reduce the chance of injury. I can give you one example is you know, we have a pool in our backyard. And when my kids were younger, we had a fence around the pool to try to reduce the likelihood that one of our young kids would get into the pool and be harmed. We made sure that our kids knew how to swim, but just in case, because there's still a risk that they might inadvertently run into the pool and get into trouble and we wouldn't be there to see them and save them. We took that fence down because our kids were older, they're very accomplished swimmers, and we thought that the risk and vulnerability was less, but now we have grandkids, and our grandkids are very young and just learning to swim, and those risks are still there, and so we do things to try to target harden, like locking the doors to the back of the house so the kids can't get out into the backyard where the pool is. If we aren't paying attention to them, you know, at all times, which is these days is very hard to do with all of the things that are going on. Um, by having um, safety mechanisms in case they do get into the pool by having floats and by having a, uh, a hook to pull the kids towards the side if necessary. Now, obviously, if we see one of the kids in the pool in trouble, we're going into the pool after them. But having a plan, having the tools necessary and trying to reduce the risk overall as part of target hardening any part of your existence, any part of your environment, any part of your planning for an event. That includes having a discussion about your plan when going to church or to school or to the shopping mall about what you would do if a sudden violent event takes place. That's changing from normal operations to emergency operations immediately and following through on the plan quickly to reduce the risk of harm to you and your family. Now, there's lots of other examples of target hardening that one can do. And I know sometimes it's intuitive for parents to do that with their kids. But even 
the adults need that target hardening plan for things that might happen in their environment when they are outside the home or even inside the home. And it just a bit of time planning um, for these emergencies and having a plan in place um, is so important. Uh, I remember telling you the story about being at a simulation, a medical simulation conference, and the president of the society was giving his opening address and someone in the front row fell out of their chair on the ground. And this was a room full of medical practitioners who happened to be medical educators who use simulation. And they all looked upon this as, oh, this must be a simulation. Boy, this is gonna be real. I wonder what they're going to do. But in fact, this person was having a real emergency. And there were several who recognized that and moved forward to help this person. The thing we found lacking in the plan, we were in a conference center in a hotel in, in another city. We, we didn't know the area well. We didn't know where the AED was. We didn't know where to tell the 911 operator our location and where to respond to. And that was a key element of our plan that was missing. And I'll tell you now, every year at that meeting, as part of the presidential address, the president says, we are in this room. This is how to tell 911 if we have an emergency. And by the way, the nearest AED is there. And that's part of a hardening plan for that organization. Learn from a, a lesson that was potentially very dangerous. Um, that having a prior discussion and a plan in place is the safe way to proceed. We can do the same thing with our families. When we go to a restaurant, we can say, here, you know, the two exits are there. Here's what we're going to do if someone does something. Having that small discussion allows people to behave better when something happens. They have a predetermined plan. They know what the first step is. We know that humans sometimes pause. They freeze. They may know what to do, but they can't get themselves to initiate that action. Having a plan and discussing it before the event gives you permission to act immediately on that plan if something to, work, to occur. Thank you. And I remember you coming up to a, uh, a, an office complex at one of our major medical centers and just naturally you looked for evacuation routes, AEDs and fire alarms and, and, and noted that there were no signs. And I, I'll never forget that uh, the first time that you came to meet with me in that office complex. So, so uh, you naturally did it and I commend you. Finally, talking briefly about our in case of emergency checklist and the article that we've written that break the ice barrier, um, why it's important now in light of these active shooter events that our singles, our seniors, our college students, A, have a medical power of attorney so someone can help make decisions if a bad event were to occur, B, uh, that they have their phone set up to uh, a contact someone if they call call 911 which especially in an active shooter event could be very very helpful um third that we know where the level one trauma centers or the major medical centers are and fourth if we need it or uh anyone really probably should have a brief medical history on their phone just in case because the first responders will look on their phones um any comments regarding this as part of resilience well absolutely now that we have these portable devices that we carry with us 24 hours a day, it makes it easy to put important information there that others who may need to see things like your 
medical history, your allergies, things that are important to know immediately in an emergency situation are right at hand. That wasn't the case when I was growing up, but it allows this technology to work for us in these circumstances so that the responding people have awareness of more than just what's going on now, but perhaps something about your chronic health state that will help them make decisions. Um, it's so important um, to consider um, a medical power of attorney document for your children who may be going out of state uh, for school or for a job because you know when they become adults, uh, you no longer have rights to make decisions for them. And I know I have uh, heard personal accounts of families that had agonizing discussions with medical providers uh, because their young adult children were injured or ill in a hospital and they, they had no rights to, to the information or to make decisions. And that can be obviated with you know, a medical power of attorney document that uh, the, the young adult child or um, children share with their parents um, as they're moving out to become independent adults in their, in their careers or when they are completing their, their education. Um, that small step of preparedness ahead of time obviates a lot of very difficult uh, legal hurdles in the medical community um, that can be agonizing at the time of uh, an emergency for, for family members. Well, thank you, Dr. Boats, and thank you for um, guiding us and giving us the expert clinical opinions regarding so many of these critical issues, especially in this time of active shooter events, lethal force incidents, and natural emergencies. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I'd just like to uh, uh, go back to uh, give uh, uh, Chief Adcock some final words, as well as uh, Randy Steiner. And, uh, and Jennifer, uh, and then I'll close out just in the next minute, uh, and then we'll extend the videotape for those that are live so that you can uh, listen to, the, listen to uh, Dr. Boats, who did a fabulous job telling us what families can do. Uh, Bill, would you like to just make concluding comments and we'll let you get back to your critical work there at Anderson and uh, you, Randy, and uh, Jennifer. Jennifer, I'll, I'll put our closing statements in and then I'll play the rest of what Dr. Boats did, which is just terrific. Go ahead, Bill. Well, thank you again. And, and uh, I just wanna reiterate, you made a good point about leadership and uh, we, we must have great leadership that helps to push these, these important initiatives forward. The other thing is, is that we cannot afford not to do these things. Not to invest in our in our in our children, into our college students, into our neighbors, into our family members, and so the, we we provide all this information. You have it up on 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 the net, and you also have it on the podcast. So you know, I, I can't thank you enough for bringing this to everybody's attention. I can't thank the other presenters; they're just so great. So thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. And I think we're having enough interest in this and we have so much going on. We'll have to do another one and really dig into some practical uh, uh, elements. Um, uh, Randy, uh, concluding comments. We'll go to Jennifer and then we'll go back to Dr. Boats and let those of you live uh, sign up. Randy. Yeah, it's uh, just, you know, active shooter, earthquake preparedness, uh, you know, severe weather. It's all a planning process and, you know, making sure that you, you 
have that planning process and you use a planning process that works, I think it's really important. I thought the most important thing is the engagement of the community. Any plan that isn't out in the community is just a paperweight. And having plans and you know, making sure those plans are are usable, you know, scalable, flexible, adaptable, all those things apply to those planning efforts. I learned one of the things I learned as a as a 19-year-old Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps was every great plan that's spent hours working on goes to hell as soon as you cross the line of departure. So having that flexibility and that adaptability in your plans is super important, not making them so detailed that they're not adaptable and they're not flexible. Um, and and applying that, you know, to the active shooter situation, I, you, you don't have to to stress really hard the importance of it, I think, to most communities, but you do have to get it out there. If it's not right in people's faces, people tend to, you know, not pay as much attention to it. So I, I agree with Chief Adcox that the, the, the implementation of these programs and this type of training from A to Z, not just the awareness piece, but the response piece, the recovery piece, the ability to provide uh, care to, to wounded people, everything, every piece of that is super important. And we really have to push that, not just in higher education, but all through the communities. And the more we are aware of it, the more we can potentially spot it before it happens, and the more we can maybe potentially stop these attacks before they occur. Thank you. And thanks for bringing up self-aid buddy aid and what we can maybe cover at a future date on uh, the real specifics that can build on Stop the Bleed in case you're in an event and or with your family and how to cut people out of certain seatbelts at MBA, a motor vehicle accident, a number of different things that we teach in our med tech course. So Randy, thank you so much. And, and uh, we really appreciate it. We'll go to um, uh, we'll go to uh, Jennifer for a last word, and then we'll go back to listen to Dr. Boats for those of you that can stay on with us. Jennifer. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Denham. What a great webinar we had today, huh? I just, I, as, uh, you know, chief family, I'm kind of the one who makes the plans for my own family. And what I wanted to stress is how important it is for you to have a power of attorney and also information to where you would get your information on your adult children. We all co-signed for the HIPAA in our family. So any one of us can get information, medical information about anyone uh, in my direct family, my children, my husband and myself. It's very important to have a plan um, and to know and understand how to do things, how to rescue others and, and save lives. This is just so in, in, important. And our speakers were wonderful today. And, and Chief Adcox, I just want you to know how much I appreciate and value what you do and, and what security does all over our country in hospitals. When I was on a PFAC at our local hospital, um, I got to know the head of security there and, and you guys are so important. And I just want to applaud you and, and thank you for your courage and all the great things that you do. Um, I encourage everyone here today to share the recording with your friends, family, colleagues, and neighbors, and come back for the next webinar and also our COVID webinars, which are very, very informative with the ever-changing virus that we're experiencing right now. Um, we're in strange times in our country, and these webinars are so important. They save lives and teach us things that we would never know. I just want to thank you, Dr. Denham, and everyone here today, Randy, and other speakers for everything. 
Um, God bless, and we'll see you all next month. As we say to all of our teams, we really believe we have to fight the good fight. We need to finish the race, and we need to keep the faith as we, as we battle failure to rescue, because everyone is a patient, and everyone can be a caregiver. We thank you for joining us today.